graduated from Biola University and would appreciate that you would also pluck the Biola Eagle. I was born too late, that's all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. We would pray, Father, that we might understand and know you in a greater and more intimate way as a result of our time together. Father, that your majesty, your transcendence, your independence would overwhelm us and that we might walk with a God who we are in awe with instead of one we become comfortable with. Father, be our teacher now. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. At the turn of the century, the most distinguished astronomer, Sir Percival Lowell, was convinced that there were canals and channels on the planet Mars. This astronomer, esteemed for his study of the solar system, had a particular fascination with the red planet when he heard in 1877 that an Italian astronomer had seen straight lines crisscrossing the Martian surface. He spent the rest of his years looking into the eyepiece of his giant telescope in Arizona, mapping and charting the canals and the channels and the lines that he saw. Incredible as it seems, we now know that there are no channels and there are no canals on the planet Mars. Space probes have orbited and landed on the planet and the entire planet has been mapped, but no one has seen a channel and no one has seen a line and no one has seen anything that looks like the things that he charted in all his very specific graphs that he left us. My question is, how could Lowell have seen so many things that were not there? Well, there are two answers to that question. The first one is that Dr. Lowell wanted to see them so badly that he just pictured them there in his mind. The second answer to the question is that we know now that Sir Lowell suffered from a rare eye disease that made him see the blood vessels in his own eyes. The Martian canals were nothing more than the bulging veins in his own eyeball that he projected onto the planet. In fact, the malady is even called today Lowell's Syndrome. What's the point? May I suggest to you that we Christians do the same thing to our God that Dr. Lowell did in projecting his own weaknesses on the planet Mars. We're guilty of two sins. We want God to be a particular way so intensely that we shut out the truth of what he really is like. And we project on our God our own views, our own personalities, our own family life, our own world view. Or we shut out all truth except for one truth about God and exclude all the rest. Some of us would say that God is a God of love and we forget his holiness. We forget his justice. We forget his wrath and his judgment. We see our God as our father, and since our earthly father, for some of us, was unfair, mean, cruel, or insensitive, 
we see God as being the exact same way. So when someone says, our Heavenly Father, we project the image of our own Father upon Him. We see God as partial to people because we treat our friends partially. We see God as big because we imagine Him as big, but yet we forget that God is bigger than we can ever possibly imagine. A.W. Tozer has said this, a very significant quote. He says, what comes to our mind about God is the most important thing about us. Let me repeat that. He says, what comes to our mind about God is the most important thing about us. And yet in contrast to that statement, it is safe to say that many of us are guilty of idolatry. In fact, I would say that most of us in this room at one time or the other, or even currently right now, are guilty of idolatry toward our God. Not the idolatry of images, not the idolatry of statues or little wooden idols, but the idolatry of wrong thoughts about God. May I suggest that before the little idol comes into being, that the thoughts that brought about that idol were already in play. And those are just as much idolatry as the little idol itself. The idolatrous Christian is one who imagined things about God that are not true. And like all humans, acts on his thoughts as if they are true and projects them on God. So we think that God is mostly loving, and so we never confront evil or sin in our own lives or anybody else's lives. We think that God is mostly forgiving, so we continue in sin. We think that God is mostly inactive, so we do what we want. We think that God is not in control, so we go the way of the world because it seems as if the way of the world is in control. We think that God is good when I am good, and God is cruel when I am bad, and so I stay somewhere in between, not totally good and not totally bad, and walk the line. And though none of us would ever verbalize these concepts of God, our behavior always shows what we truly think about our God. Our behavior always shows what we really think about who God is and what we really believe. And what's so amazing about this is that many Christians see problems in their Christian lives. Many of you right now could think of one issue that you're struggling with, but never think that the root issue is a faulty view of God. And yet it is. And yet it is. And that's why so many here are content with snapshots of God. And why so many Southern California Christians don't really hunger for a true, intimate, close relationship with their Savior, with their King, with their Lord. Why? Because they haven't seen that or the lack of that as the major cause of their struggles in their Christian walk. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to introduce something at this very special inaugural week. I would like us to get a greater view of who He is. I would like us, like us to begin to think rightly about Him and confess, starting today, our idolatry of Him and begin to view Him rightly and stop projecting our own weaknesses on Him and stop practicing what Psalm 50.21 says where God says, You thought that I was just like you. Today I want you to be like my son Matthew. 
when he was one year old, about a year ago, I held out before him two crackers, two little graham crackers. One of them, a little bite-sized piece, just enough for him to handle. The other one was four to five times the size of the little one that I was holding out before him. And I held them out both before him to allow him to pick whatever one he would take. And of course he chose the one that he couldn't handle. He chose the one that was too big for him. He chose the one that when he grabbed it and tried to stick it in his mouth, he stuck it in his eye. I would like you this morning to be bold enough to reach out and begin to put God in the place that he belongs. To pick out and begin to grab after the God that's too big for you to handle. And I'd like to do that two ways. I would like you to take a quiz with me as Debbie turns the overhead on. And I would also like you to begin to allow me to summarize the attributes of God that really set him apart. I want you this morning to submit to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24 that says, Let not the wise man, listen to me, boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. Let not anyone boast of anything except let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and he knows me, the God of the universe. And so what I'd like you to do right now is to take a look at that quiz on the board and answer them. And here are the rules. You cannot share with your neighbor. You cannot tell them what you think. And I will tell you this phrase. And the answer is, and you will answer either true or false. And you all must answer. Or your neighbor will stand up and tell on you. Question number one. God cannot change the way that he is. And the answer is... The answer is true. Not bad. Number two. God never learns. And the answer is true. That is correct. Number three, God can do anything. And the answer is false. Very good. Number four, God exists at the beginning and at the end at the same time. The answer is true. Number five, God has no need for mankind. The answer is? The answer is? The answer is true. <laughs> How convinced are you? Number six. God has no self-imposed limitations. The answer is false. The answer is false. Number seven. God has three parts. The answer is? The answer is false. Number eight. God gets better when you believe him. The answer is? True Okay. The answer is false. Number nine, God can be fully known, God can be known but not fully known. The answer is true. Some of you are really mumbling, okay? We want you to speak out with boldness as if you knew the answer. Number ten, God is everywhere while he is nowhere. The answer is the answer is true. Because where refers to space and time and God is independent of both. Number, 20, uh, number 11, God could stop existing if he chose to. The answer is false. 
Number 12, to believe God adds nothing to him. The answer is true. And number 13, each person is not necessary to God. The answer is that is true. That is true. And I'd like to summarize that quiz very briefly. Some of you had the courage to speak out. Others of you didn't care. But let's take a look and summarize some attributes of God that shed light on his infinitude, his supremacy, his self-sufficiency, and his transcendence. And the first characteristic is that God is measureless. Number one, God is measureless. Another way of saying that is God is boundless, limitless, and unboxable. And again, please, this morning, have the attitude of a learner that reaches out for the God who he really can't comprehend in the fullest. Listen to what Job chapter 11, verses 7 through 9 states. Job chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. It says, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Practically, what does it mean that God is measureless? Well, let's take a look at it in relation to several aspects of who God is. In relationship to time. Being measureless means that with God there is no time. That means that yesterday and tomorrow are right now to God. That means that God already exists tomorrow, right now, as well as he still continues to exist yesterday at the same time. For God, all that has happened and will happen has already happened and yet currently exists. With God, there is no after and with God, there is no before. You ever thought that that could mean that all us Christians and saints and true believers arrive in heaven at the same moment? This is just a thought for fun. Since we step from time to eternity, could it be that the Apostle Paul, King David, and Russ Moore enter into eternity at the same moment? Well, maybe not Russ. I don't know. You see, God is measureless. God is not bound by the constraints in which we exist. Time is a created element. It is not something that is eternal. And though at times we are surprised, God is never surprised. Let me say that again. Though at times we are surprised, God is never surprised. That's good news, isn't it? You can trust in a God like that. You can trust Him with the current trial that you're going through. You can trust Him with a difficult family relationship. You can trust Him with that girlfriend or boyfriend or lack thereof. You can trust Him with school. You can trust Him with a job, money. You can trust Him with your looks, your height, your marriage, potential marriage, hopeful marriage, whatever marriage. And you can trust him with your car, because God knows. God is not surprised. He's not limited by the same boundaries that we as finite human beings are limited. If God is so measureless, how does it relate to his grace? How does it relate to his grace? In Romans 5.20 it states this, 
Where sin abound, grace abounded all the more. Let me ask you a Sunday school question, and I want you to give me a Sunday school answer. Who does sin belong to, God or man? The answer is, oh, thank you, okay. Another Sunday school question, is man limited or limitless? Limited. Therefore, sin belongs to limited man. Let me ask you another Sunday school question. Who does grace belong to, God or man? God. Is God limited or limitless? Limitless. Therefore, grace belongs to limitless God. Can you think, and just for a moment, even though you're understanding, you know that you're saved, you walk with Jesus Christ, how great news that is? That means that sin has limits because it belongs to us. But grace, the cure to sin, is from limitless God, and the Bible says that that grace literally abounds exceedingly more. It is super grace. You can't be sinful enough because God's grace is measureless. That means that you can be forgiven for the rotten, horrible, rebellious things that you have done. If you turn to Him, you can be forgiven because His grace is boundless. It's measureless. The relationship of my sin to God's grace is like when I just recently went to the beach and I let my Pepsi get too warm and I walked over to the ocean and I poured my Pepsi into the ocean and attempted to stain the ocean. And I poured it in, and a little brown stain formed, and the first wave that came by wiped it out, and it was gone. Your sin in relationship to God's grace is like pouring a Pepsi trying to stain the Pacific Ocean. It's measureless. It's measureless. For you theologians who think deeply, let me ask you another question. Is God's grace limited to the elect? Is it limited to just the saved, or is it extended to all men? Also, is it limited to persons of periods of time? Is God's grace limited to particular aspects of time? How was grace in effect? Now listen to this. How was it in effect before the world was when there was no need for grace because there was no one to be gracious to? Does that throw a little cookie in your basket? Is your cracker getting bigger? If God is so measureless, then how does it relate to His origin? His origin. God always was and will be as well as is everywhere yet nowhere. Why? Because where has to do with time and space and God is limited to neither because He is beyond both. He is beyond both. That means that God is never far away. Nor can you hide from God. Nor can you restrict Him to a space. You cannot be like the Hindu who is seen going from tree to tree, knocking on the tree saying, Are you there? Because we can't get away from His presence. We can't limit Him. Even when we feel far, He is still ever close. God is closer to you than you are willing to live or admit or recognize because He will never leave you. If you are truly His child, even when in rebellion, He won't leave you. Even when the joy is gone, even when in sin, if you're truly His child, you cannot escape His presence. When I was a young boy, I was the smallest and the youngest in our family. I had an older brother and older sister. 
And my dad knew well enough to know that for me to feel important in the family, he had to kind of get creative. And so what he did is we would play games in our family on Sundays, on the afternoons. And so he would make it a practice that we would play hide-and-seek, and I would hide and everyone else would seek after me. And so what he would do, since I was the smallest in the family, he would hide me in places like the washing machine. He would undo vents in the house and put me inside and screw them back in. And my brother and sister would run all over the place and they couldn't find me. And I was elated because I could escape their presence. And I had worth. But I want you to know, no matter how hard you try, whether you hide yourself in sin, whether you hide yourself among non-Christians, whether you hide yourself with secret sin, you cannot hide from God because He's measureless. If God is so measureless, then that should evaluate and cause us to examine how idolatrous are we. Let me ask you some questions and you would examine your own life. Do you worry about the future? Do you worry about a mate, a job, security, a family? If you do, then you don't have a correct view of who God is. Do you think that God cannot forgive you or cleanse you? Do you think that God leaves you when you sin? If you do, you are a practicing, idolatrous Christian. Then your thoughts are wrong of God and your view of God is wrong and you're committing idolatry. Well, God is not only M measureless, M measureless, but He is also C complete. He is complete. Listen to what Romans chapter 11 verses 35 and 36 say. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Familiar verses to us, but they really make a statement that God is complete. And since God is complete, that means that he has, first of all, no needs. No needs. God contains all. He is self-sufficient. God has given all that is given and all that exists. You know what that means? That means that God is the first source. I know some of you guys, you've seen some of these very attractive women in our midst. And you've looked at them and you said, boy, they must have very attractive parents. But I want you to know that the parents are only a secondary source. Some of you look at plants and you think about seeds and you think about soil, but those are only the secondary source. The primary source of all, the first source of everything is God. God can receive nothing that He did not first give. That means that all of life is to be lived out in an expression of thankfulness for all that He has provided. I know why now God calls us His children. When I look at my son, all of his food, all of his clothes, all of his well-being comes from us. And yet there's a certain tendency in him that he wants to live out on his own. He wants to live independently, even though everything relationally and socially comes from his mom and his dad. I really believe that we Christians tend to sometimes live the same way. 
We tend to view things and try and do it our own independent way and view everything as our own self, our own way. We're our own independent creature and yet we forget that God is really the first source of all. God is complete in such a way that it means that He has no necessities. He has no necessities. It was not necessary for God to save anyone. It was not necessary for God to save you nor to be interested in a rebellious human race. But isn't it great that He chose to be interested in us and to love us? It would be like the President Reagan speaking at a Democratic rally at Dodger Stadium. And as the people are shouting abuse at him and rebelling and calling him names and trying to shout so loud that they would overcome his speaking, he stops. And he goes to one who is in rebellion to him and he expresses his love for him and he calls him out and he says, I want you to be my son. That's what God did to us. He called us out to be his children. Since God has no necessities, we can add nothing to him. Our fellowship, worship, praise and gifts don't make him better. Nor can we promote God nor degrade him. He is the unaffected one. Think for a moment. Answer these yes or no. If we were all blind, would the stars still shine? Yes. If we were all atheists, would God still exist? Yes. The great news is God is consistent. He is not affected when I disobey as a Christian. He'll still stay with me, though I may feel far. Though the world is against Him, He is still glorious. He is so complete and so merciful in extension in extending that completeness to us that even a rebel like Josh McDowell who tried with every ounce of his strength to disprove that God even existed could be called by God to be his own child. Not only is God complete, so complete that he has no needs and no necessities, but he also needs no help. God needs no help. Christians feel like we have to help God by sharing the gospel or teaching or going to church and living godly. No. No, God allows us to assist Him in His plan and His program. But He doesn't need our help. He's complete. It is for His glory and our good that we serve Him. His glory and our good that we serve Him. If you lost everything and the richest banker in the world extended an incredibly large sum of money to you and said it is a gift and I don't want you to pay it back, it's all free, but then you felt guilty and so you paid some back, he didn't need it. It didn't help him and it didn't make any difference and it's the same with God. He gave us all. And to give back to him doesn't help him. It's our obligation and it pleases Him, but it doesn't help Him. It doesn't make Him better. He's complete. He's like the great chess master who plays his game and doesn't need anyone over his shoulder telling him what moves to make. Just imagine yourself going up to the greatest chess master that ever lived and said, Hey, why don't you move that knight right over here? He would look at you with a puzzled look and basically dismiss you because he doesn't need your help. The exciting thing about our relationship with God is that he invites us and he lets us know 
and he helps us participate with his moves on the board. And we can be a part of his incredible game plan. What a privilege. God is complete. Stop for a moment and reflect. Are your pictures getting bigger? Are you really reaching out to begin to see God for who he is? I hope like a tidal wave about to crash on your thoughts of God, you're beginning to be overwhelmed a little bit. I hope like a searchlight, the truth about God is exploding your idolatrous thoughts about him. Do you truly thank God for all you have or do you covet more? Are you grateful for your family, friends, and material things or do you complain and grumble? Do you serve God because you're a debtor or to help poor Jesus save the world? Do you worship God with awe or routinely? Good questions to ask to examine whether we are idolatrous toward Him. But God is not only measureless and God is not only complete, but He's also independent. He's also independent. God is free to do what He wants. Psalm 115 verse 3 says this, Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. He does whatever He pleases. Think for a moment. Can God be jealous? Yes or no? Yes. Can we be jealous? No. Can God seek preeminence? Yes. Can we? No. Can God desire to be glorified? Yes. Can we? No. God can do unseemingly unfair things. God can tell Hosea to marry a woman that would become a harlot. That woman would cheat on him, commit adultery, the most emotionally painful thing that a couple can ever go through. Why? To communicate to Israel how they had treated him, their God, and cheated on him and committed adultery with him. God told Hosea to marry Gomer just to get a point across, just to be an illustration. God will do small things to show himself independent. I know a year ago, my wife and I were in a situation where we needed a car. Now, I think some of you can identify with this because we couldn't buy a car. We couldn't buy a new car. We couldn't buy a used car. We couldn't make payments on any car. We just needed a car. And so we talked about it and we decided that we would pray that God would somehow miraculously give us a car. Three days later, I said, Jean, what kind of car are you praying for? I'm praying for a Mercedes. She said, honey, she looked at me and she got real serious because she really thought about this. She said, honey, I'm praying for a station wagon, but not a big one. It's the exact phrase that she used. And she explained that because of our son and because of our ministry that we would need a car like that and that would be a real helpful car for us. Two days later, my wife's already in bed. I'm up studying. I get a phone call. The only people that know about this are a small group of women who've been praying. And uh, a friend named Domingo calls me up and he says, I- I've got this car and uh, I've been trying to put it on this lot and I got a ticket. So I moved it over to the list- this lot and I got a ticket there and I moved it over to the list lot and I got a ticket and I moved it over to this lot and they put up a no trespassing sign and I-, I figured that God was telling me to give the car away and I want to give it to you. Then he said, oh, I might as well tell you what kind of car it is. This is the exact phrase he used. It's a station wagon, but not a big one. I fell off my chair. (laughs) 
God gave us that car. He is so independent, He can do what He wants. Even to put the words in His mouth so that I wouldn't stupidly think that it was Domingo giving me the car. God will also do the radical, the unpredictable to show us how unboxable He is. He'll kill Jim Elliott and other missionaries so that He'll save the Aka Indians as well as call hundreds of others to the mission field. He'll cripple a young girl in a diving accident so He can have a spokesperson for the handicap in the person of Johnny Erickson Tata. He'll sell an 18-year-old into slavery and then throw him into prison to eventually exalt him in Egypt to preserve the nation of Israel in the person of Joseph. God is independent. He is not routine. He is unboxable. He is bigger than we can handle. He is wiser than we can comprehend. You cannot limit God, Christian. As soon as you say He can't save your parents, He'll save them. As soon as you say He doesn't love creepy people, He'll love some creepy person. As soon as you say he can't desire or like people who are different than us and don't fit in our little group, you'll see his love and grace and mercy extended toward those people. As soon as you say he can't change me or he can't cause me to grow or I just can't master the sin issue in my life, he'll blow you away. Because God is independent. Let me ask you a question. Is the God that you worship a God who is M, measureless, a God who is C-complete and a God who is I-independent? Is that MCI long-distance God a little closer? Does your life and behavior show that He is your God? Does your life display a right view of God or is it a reflection of your own sinful veins? This week, maybe for the first time in your life, I challenge you to begin to view God rightly to think rightly about Him and to begin to worship Him not only in spirit, but in truth for who He really is. And if you do that, if this is the God that you trust, then your heart and your life will be like the second century Christian who they brought before the emperor who wanted the, this Christian to give up his Christ and give up his Christianity. And the king said, if you don't give up Jesus Christ and you don't defame the name of your king, I will banish you. The man smiled and answered, you can't banish me from Christ because he says he'll never leave me nor forsake me. The king, growing mad, he said, if you don't deny Jesus Christ, I'll take all your property and possessions. You'll have nothing. The man replied, my treasures are laid up on high. You can't get them. The king became furious. He says, if you do not deny Jesus Christ, I'll kill you. Why, the man said, I've been dead for 40 years. I've been dead in Christ, dead to the world. My life has hidden Christ in God, and you can't touch it. And the emperor said, what will you do with such a fanatic? And if you believe that God is measureless, complete, and independent, you will be a fanatic too. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for not being like me. Thank you so much for not being as limited and as narrow 
and as bound as we are. Thank you for being a God who is far beyond what we can even imagine. Far beyond what we can even think. That we can even comprehend. Thank you for being a God who is other than us. Thank you so much for being our Savior. For being one who has extended himself to us, not because we deserved it, not because you need us, but because you chose to extend your love to us. We thank you and we praise you for that. And we ask God only that we would begin right now to think rightly about you. Make this week a week in which we will have a new relationship with the God of the Word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. Thank you very much, Chris.